This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello listeners and welcome to the City Report podcast for what is a little bit of a different episode this time around. If you're looking for a reaction to City's Manchester Derby win against United, just scroll back on your podcast feed and you'll be able to listen to our match reaction in full from that fixture. But today, I am delighted to say I'll be joined by journalist and broadcaster Lars Sivertson to discuss his new book, Harland, the incredible story behind the world's greatest striker. My chat with Lars is split into two parts, the first of which discusses Haaland's childhood and start to life in football. Tomorrow's episode will contain the second part of our conversation, so make sure to stick around for that. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November. I'm Amos Murphy, and this is the City Report Podcast. Welcome listeners to a very special and exciting episode of the City Report podcast. I am beyond delighted to say joining me is sports writer and broadcaster, but perhaps most importantly for today's <laughs> chat, Norwegian Lars Sivertsen. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's very, very exciting, exciting to be on. I'm, I'm very happy to be on to talk about... Um, Talk about well, I would say that the greatest current Norwegian certainly is he the greatest Norwegian of all time. I don't know. We'll maybe get there in a few years, but uh, yeah, uh, Erling Holland, uh, what a guy! Yeah, 
What a guy. What a guy indeed. I think everyone listening to this show has already fallen in love with him. Um, both on and off the pitch, what a character, and, and that's something I'm sure we'll delve into. But as the title of the show suggests, as the introduction suggests, we are here to speak about a certain Erlen Braut Harlan because you've put a book together, yeah. I believe, about his life, his upbringing, mm. some of the people who have made it. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty, could you just quickly explain to us what the book is about and, and why you've embarked on this journey to put it together? Mm. That's, a, that's a very good question because the book is, I suppose it is technically an unauthorized biography. It's a, it's a book about him and, and his life, but it's done without cooperation from uh, from the family. And that poses some interesting challenges, I think, because you're not mm. going to get uh, access as such. So then you have to ask yourself, what, what, what are we doing here? Like, what's the, Are you writing a really long Wikipedia entry? That seems bad. <laughs> um, but, but what I decided to do is I, I wanted to do it anyway, partially because I, I guess I have an unusual familiarity with his background because I grew up in the same town as Erling Holland. I grew up in Brunner. Um, it's just a town of about, I think, about 12,000 people now in the southwest mm. of Norway. Um so I, I guess what I felt that I could bring to this was a familiarity with that background. And what you can do then, even if you're short on, on access to him, of course, what you can do is you can, you can listen to what he says himself. You know, he's a guy who speaks a lot about the importance of where he's from in terms of shaping him. He's very generous in terms of flagging up people who's helped him along the way. He's spoken a number of times about his youth coach, Alfinger Bounsen. He's... Uh, He's sort of name-checked when he's received awards in Norway. He's name-checked uh, Torbjörn Haugen, the chef at Molde, a few times for just feeding him all the great food that made him grow so big. And I think that's a really endearing quality that he has, that he's someone who's really very uh, aware of where he comes from and the people who's helped him get to where he is. And he's very generous in terms of, of, of praising them. And I think, well, we can speak to them then, can't we? We can, we can, get, we can try to get a feel for these communities that have shaped him over the years. And the sort of qualities that he and traits that he picked up uh, because of his background, and then hopefully see how these things have, have contributed to shaping the success that's that's come after. So uh, that's more or less what I've tried to do. Yeah, fascinating. I almost feel that probably makes for a better read in some ways because you could, I guess, have all the family stories, the family secrets, etc. But that that's going to be that's going to come with its own sort mm. of PR polished nature. Whereas you, you've gone you've gone beneath that. You've gone into what makes him him essentially and, and the people who've shaped this this worldwide megastar yeah so i don't like to generalize because there are some authorized biographies out there that are good but i can tell you a lot yeah, of them are yeah. real bad <laughs> so I, I hope when the day comes <laughs> and the holland family decides they want to put forward their side of all the stories that they pick someone pick a very good writer and that they allow a degree of freedom and openness in that kind of project i'm sure they will but 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 i sort of some of my favorite football books are unauthorized biographies, and some of my least favorite ones have been authorized ones. I figured, you know, I'll, I'll do my best, and we see, and I'll see how we go. And um, it is almost more. Um, again, you have to be very conscious of what you can do and what you can't do. His innermost thoughts do not feature heavily in my book because, frankly, I don't know them. But I can mm. go deep into the communities and environments that shaped him, and and try to tell that story so you, so the reader, hopefully, get a sense of who he is. And um, 
and, and how he's become the player he is. So that was kind of what I set out trying to do. And uh, yeah, it'll be up to others to judge if I've succeeded in that regard. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, it's a good book. I guess most of his inner thoughts are probably Minecraft and, <laughs> and what he's having for tea and and what sort of concoction milk Watches. concoctions he's come a next. big watch enthusiast. He's not. Th- this is something I, I discovered, which I thought is really cool. He's not just one of these wealthy footballers who has really expensive watches for mm. the sake of it. He's he's a bit of a watch nerd, uh, which I think is tremendous. Also a big sneakerhead as well, so he likes to collect things. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, very interesting. Um, I, I guess we'll get into it then, and, and we'll start from the beginning, because the book does charter Harlan's upbringing, mm. development, rise to stardom, starting in his, and incidentally, your hometown of... I want to get this. I want to get this straight right off the bat. Brina, Brina, very Brina. good. Yeah, Brina, that's fantastic. There we yeah. go. There we go. I, I have practiced it in my mirror mm-hmm. um, multiple times before coming on. So um, that there we go, Brina. Um, yeah, because it, it looks. I guess it looks like burn in the yes. sort of Anglo Anglo speak sort of way. Yeah, frequently misspelled uh, to burn. Uh, Google tra- <laughs> Google very often. Did you mean burn? I did not mean burn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Um, so, 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 is, is there a little town near Oslo called Burn? Because when I was looking. I, 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 it came up there and it was like a town Breen, of perhaps, 1,000 yeah. people. I was like, this is not... There's this too is not small. It. Yeah, no, it's Brina. Brina. Yeah, Brina. And, and this is where, of course, I'm in a strange position because I write and, and talk about football for a living and uh, suddenly this scrawny kid from my very small town is one of the best, uh, if not the best strikers in the world. That is a very strange thing to happen. That usually does not happen. Uh, but what I can say is that in a sense, I knew about Alan Holland before many other people, in the sense that my father, who's a very committed uh, Brina supporter, uh, you know, long-time season ticket holder, and uh, he, he ran a small business who sponsored the club for a while, and was very involved, uh, he would often talk about, well, you know, when Alfie Holland's kids grow up, we're going to, the team's going to be very good again. Because the team did kind of fall on hard times for a period. And he was like, ah, just wait until Alfie's kids come around. It's going to be. And you just, in the, in the patient way, you, you listen, we listen to our fathers. I'm like, yeah, Dad, I'm sure, I'm sure that'll happen. Turns out, my father very much had the last laugh there. He, he was not wrong about at least one of Alfie Holland's kids. So I had a vague awareness that Alfie Holland had children and uh, that my father was quite determined that they should become good footballers. And aside from that, I think I, I probably started noticing him in the same way everyone else did. I mean, obviously, Alfie was a great player himself um, for City briefly, also for Leeds and, and Nottingham Forest. Also played for Norway. I mean, I remember being a kid watching Norway in the 94 World Cup and just being amazed that a guy from our town was in the squad and, and played uh, two of the three group stage games. That that was something that really, for me, I was, I was seven years old at the time. For me, that was amazing. Um, so so as Aling's father was already one of the most famous people ever from Brina. And uh, so, so you're aware when his kid obviously starts getting minutes uh, for, for the for senior team, at a time the senior team was really struggling, but he started getting minutes. You 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 notice that. And then I was living abroad at the time. So I think the first moment I really thought, good lord, that there there's something here is when he had moved to Molde to play under Olga Solskjaer. And there was one game which stands out. You I'm mean, sure if you're a big City fan and you're a big Erling Holland fan, you I'm sure you've seen the footage at some point. But he do, he scores four goals in a game in a uh, away to, to Bonn. Uh, in in Bergen, which which to provide some context, it's not necessarily an easy place to go. It certainly wasn't that season. They had they had something that like the best defensive record in the league, and Erling was someone who was very talented. He'd done well at youth level. Solskjaer adored him, had a lot of faith in him, but he hadn't really started scoring at senior levels. So there was still some discussion: is this guy actually any good? 
and, and he was uh, he had physical gifts. He was starting to grow into himself, but he could seem a bit clumsy when he was younger. Occasionally, his, his technique wasn't super polished, and he would miss some chances. So there were still naysayers out there. And then he he turned up in in Bagen, uh, one summer's uh, evening and just blew upon the way with with four goals. And that was when people got good lord. Okay, this guy at least the ceiling is pretty high. Uh, and, mm. and I think I sort of sat up and took notice the same way everyone else did at that point. Trying to think of when the first time I remembered hearing about Erling Haaland, I think it was probably his his nine goal haul in the mm. uh, was it the under twenty yeah. World Cup? Yeah. Um, <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, most people probably heard of it. Football for, uh, football manager fanatics as well would have have been oh doing that path well before. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, a famous wonder kid for, yeah. for those of that 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 persuasion. But um, I, I guess you and I share that the, the common ground in the sense that we both uh, come from the town of of Manchester City heroes because Phil Foden is from Stockport. Of course. A Stockfordian. So of course. Slightly different, I guess, but uh, there is certainly no, no, some no. parallels there. But but if, if I can just sort of take you back to, to Brina, because I, I really want to delve in on this mm, because mm. I, I guess most listeners probably won't know what it's like to live and grow up in, in, a, in a Scandi town and 12,000 people live there. You know, what exactly paint the picture. What was Erling Haaland's upbringing as a child like in okay. Brina? So the thing I'd like people to know, and I go quite deep into it in the book, is that Brina is the sort of regional center in a region called Jaren, which is a farming region. And it looks mm-hmm. very different to what you imagine Norway to be. You, you'll notice this if you ever fly to Stavanger. Maybe maybe you're going on Alling Hall and Safari. Maybe you're such a big city fan that you just want to see where <laughs> the great man is from. I don't know. Uh, but if you fly in to Stavanger from the south, you'll notice as you approach the southern coast of Norway that there is a sort of weird strip of land that doesn't look like what you associate with Norway. The sort of the craggy mm. mountains give way to a big sort of lowland plain that reaches all the way from um, from about Sirevog up to, to Stavanger. And, and, and this is a, a strip of land that was basically chiseled down by the last ice age and flattened. Uh, so the, 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 ice, the, the ice and the, the glaciers of the last ice age just totally smoothed out the land there so it doesn't look mountainous like the rest of Norway. And it left a very thick layer of soil. Uh, so because it's in the south, it has a slightly longer growing season. It, it's flat. It has a thick layer of soil. It's basically pretty much the best place in Norway to grow stuff. Uh, so so it's, a very, it's a very good farming, very good farmland. But there was a catch, historically speaking, which was that, yes, the glaciers uh, made it flat and left a lot of soil. Glaciers also left a lot of rocks. And, and there's like, you'll see the parts of this land that's not cultivated. There's rocks everywhere uh, because the soil is kind of pushing rocks up from the ground constantly. So in the old olden days, in the 1800s, 1700s, oh, the, the ye olde farmers of the region, <laughs> they could make a good living. They could grow stuff. You know, it, it was a good farmland, but they had to manually, before machines came, they had to manually clear the ground of rocks constantly. Like constantly. And, and every year there wow. would be new rocks sprout, sprouting from the ground. <laughs> Uh, and this is that this was a whole thing. Uh, so it's an area where you could succeed. You know, you could start from nothing, and you could work the land, and you could do well for yourself. But it took literally backbreaking work. Like it was, it was, a, mm. and it bred a kind of rugged uh, stoicism. You know, the mentality of people from Yaren historically. I mean, cultural, regional stereotypes always a little bit iffy, but there is something <laughs> to this. Of in Norway, people from Yaren will be known as being quite sort of rugged and stoic and and hard workers, but often men of few words, uh, and and that's very much the sort of scene there. This will change over the years, of course, with 
the world is different now. But even someone like my father is a man who will definitely not use 10 words if, if two words is enough. You know, <laughs> there is a culture of, you know, you get up in the morning and you work the land and you go to bed. And, you know, and there's also a sense of you should never get carried away with anything. You know, if things are going well today, they could go very badly tomorrow. Who knows? Your, your, your crops could fail. Mm. It could all go wrong. So there's a, the land and the culture of the past is really has really shaped the way people from that part of the world are. And you can definitely see some of this in, in Young Erling. Not all of it. I mean, he's a little bit more flamboyant in the dress sense, for instance, than most people <laughs> from uh, from Jagen would be. But his way of <clears throat> certainly not getting too down when things are going badly, to focus on just working harder tomorrow and doing even better, he does, mm-hmm. he does occasionally get a little bit. I mean, he celebrates. No, no one can accuse him of not celebrating successes. <laughs> he, he enjoys himself when things are going well. Mm. But he doesn't lose. And I, I don't think he'll go off the rails. I think he's someone who's very focused on, on the work you have to do to succeed. And that is conditioned a little bit, I would argue, by, by the region he's his from. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, I, I can't imagine trying to farm with rocks just sprouting out of the ground. Yeah, is, is sort of. Well, you can imagine how excited farmers were when like modern machinery became a thing. I was like, wow, help get some help lifting yeah. these damn rocks, uh, which is also yeah, a thing. That... I mean, historically, according to local historians, anyway, that the farmers of Jagen were quicker to adopt modern machineries than farmers elsewhere in Norway because I guess oh, they wow. saw that we need some help with these damn rocks, and we re- so. Um, if you want to really stretch these sort of social cultural football comparisons, you could say, I mean, Alling is someone mm. who's always been very interested in, uh, as he calls it, biohacking, about it being learning more about what he can do to improve his body. And he'll do things like wear goggles to keep the blue light out in the evenings where he sleeps better. And he's yeah. always been quite obsessive with and embracing new methodology for improving himself. You, you could maybe, I mean, it's very fanciful, but, you know, eh, the farmers, they, inv- they, f- they found the machines to help them lift the rocks. Young Erling has found the goggles to help him sleep better at night. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something there. <laughs> but, but there are photographs, aren't there, of, of Erling in sort of embracing this farming culture. Um, oh, yeah. I think one of the most famous ones is, is I, don't, I don't know where it is, I don't know the backstory, but he's there with a massive chainsaw. And oh, yeah. you know, that is, <laughs> he has he has really embraced the, this part that, of the world and he's so proud of it. There's a photo of him uh, topless on, a, on an old tractor. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I mean, because his great uncle, I mean, he has an incredible, we, we talk about his father a lot, but he has an incredible sort of football pedigree in his family. His... Uh, his grandmother's uh, brother on the mother's side was the greatest uh, player in the history of, of Bruna. His name is uh, Gabriel Heulon. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a, I mean, I call him in the book a kind of a Kevin Keegan figure if Kevin Keegan also worked on the family farm in addition to being a footballer. <laughs> um, he played for Bruna for many I'm years. I'm not sure Kevin Keegan would well, ever. Well, maybe not. Ever well, but he was that, that sort of, he was Kevin Keegan. He was compared to Glenn Hoddle quite a bit. Uh, Gabriel mm-hmm. Heulon, he was sort of a, a number 10 with an eye for goal, you know, an attacking player. And he stayed at Brune his entire career. He had plenty of offers, but he stayed locally. Now, he's also a pretty close relation to, to Erling Holland, and, and uh, that family is a family he spent a good amount of time with when, when he was young, so that, that, that impacted him as well. So, so listen, it is partially why I think it's interesting to go that deep into the sort of farming uh, roots of this community is because he really flags it up and is really proud of it and, and, and really sort mm-hmm. of is happy to... To, to, to front that part of his, his heritage. In terms of his actual upbringing, I mean, Brina today is more of a modern small town. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the sort of service and commercial hub of, of the region. So he'll have spent some time on farms for sure. But it's also, um, it's, it's a small town that has 
it's a good place to grow up. It's a very safe place to grow up. You, mm. you, you can, I mean, I've lived in London for a while now. I, I know when I was a kid in Brunei, I would just kind of, my, my parents would just kick me out and just go play and come back when you need food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, I, I'd go off fishing on my own. I was, you, can, you can kind of roam the streets unprotected and unsupervised mm. in mm. a way that maybe some parts of modern Britain, you, kids probably can't. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. so, so he will have had a very, very comfortable upbringing in, in that sense. And of course, sport will have been a very huge, huge part of it from an early age. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The Etihad Stadium really is wonderful at this time of the season. And the same goes for McDelivery. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. One, one thing that's fascinated me about Erlian Harlan's childhood, his upbringing, and in the context of football, because I don't think we see this enough. In fact, I know we don't see it enough, is how long he stayed there. Mm-hmm. Because we see, we see nowadays, don't we, kids eight, nine, ten years old going to join academies across the continent, Ajax, Barcelona, Manchester City are as guilty of it than anyone. I mean, even go to South America, that is a different kettle of fish. But with Haaland, with Brina, uh, was it 16 he stayed there? Mm. And, And I just wonder, Lars, how important do you think that was in terms of the player, but also the person, because by all accounts, he's a very humble, a very mm. kind, a very family-driven person. And it's that it, it's sort of an anomaly, isn't it, for this world megastar to have stuck around in his hometown, playing for his hometown club for so long. What effect did that have on the player? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's probably, I mean, in all due uh, lack of humility, I think my favorite chapter in the book is I've, I've spoken for a very long time with the youth coach who who had him primarily, who was you know, his primary sort of youth coach from he was about eight till he was 15, 16. His name is Alfinger Bouncen. And the, the reason I think that's super interesting is that he was coached in a way that I think would surprise people because there is a real, as you mentioned, there's a real trend now in England, elsewhere, towards taking these very young kids and kind of squeezing them into sort of mm. the conveyor belt talent factories. And, and don't get me wrong, that can work. I mean, you see how well England are doing, uh, sort of England under-19s, under-21s. You know, the, you, Clearly, a lot of talent is being produced in this country. Like, you know, I'm not going to say a bad word about the academies, but it does worry me a little bit. I do think that trend mm. of taking 10, 11, 12-year-olds and forcing them to be very, very professional at a very, very early age and not really letting them be kids, that's something that just on a human level concerns me a little bit. And I think Erling Haaland is interesting because he is a little bit of a counterpoint to that. He, he was part of a group of, of kids... Uh, the rest of the kids from from the 99 generation he's born in 2000 of course he was moved up a year because he showed a lot of promise very early 
But he was part of a group of kids that were coached by a gentleman named Alfinger Bounsen, who who has a UEFA license and is a very serious coach and a very serious guy. This isn't always the case in Norway. Um, and I have to give a bit of context here in the sense that in the UK, because the population density, almost regardless of where you live in the UK, a kid can kind of choose between a grassroots sort of nice mm. fun club to play in. But if you show some promise, there'll be a more serious club, a more academy somewhere they can go into. In a town like Bruna, there is one club. Uh, there's the football club that's where you play and so the mm. coaches there then just kind of have to ask themselves what is actually our mandate why are we why are we putting on organized football in this town and and uh, mr banson and his coaches who worked with him decided to be very clear on the fact that this club exists and this youth department exists not just to develop the most promising ones in the hope that they might become professionals they exist to be a place where kids can be kids, where they can keep active, when they can play, where they can develop as, as human beings. So their focus was primarily on developing the human being more so than developing the, the footballer. And as he, he says to me in the book, they had, they had three rules, which was you have to be on time, you have to try your best, and you have to behave yourself. And, and, and that was sort of the guiding lines. And, and of course, him having a UEFA A license and being a highly qualified coach, they could provide them very good coaching within the scope of that. But it was a very inclusive setup. And they did, they tried as much as they could not to separate the most talented kids from their friends who were maybe slightly less talented. He makes the point, I think, very wisely is that we often start uh, separating kids according to ability around sort of 12, 13 ish is when it starts getting really serious. But that's that's the time where people start secondary school. Right? That's the time where you leave primary school, you go into secondary school, people hit puberty. You know, young boys, mm. of course, are always going to act tough on the outside, but on the inside, it's just a mess. You know, people are really uncertain and insecure about themselves. It's such a terrible time to suddenly start telling kids that you can't play football with your mates anymore because you're not good enough at kicking a ball. Like, that's terrible. Should, we should try to not do that. <laughs> so he had this vision of let's try to have this group of 40 kids and let's keep them together as much as we can and see if it's possible to have an arena where the ones who are, you know, might not even keep playing football, maybe they're going to be plumbers and play in the 10th tier, if anything. And, and give them the same amount of uh, of attention and, and care as we give to the ones that clearly have talent and could go far. And that puts a lot of demands on the coaches. They have to be very good at differentiating the feedback and giving different mm. challenges. Uh, and eventually they did have to split up the teams a little bit when you get to like 11 aside and you know you have to have one team for the slightly more serious kids and they get chances to train more often if they want to. But they really went as far as they could to not segregate them more than what was necessary. And I, I think I, I have a very long and detailed chapter about the, how they worked, and I, I hope people read it, because I think it's such an interesting example of how you can do this. And then you look at Erling and say, well, at least you can have a world-class talent and you can coach them according to those principles, and they can still turn out pretty good. Uh, and, and I think that's a useful lesson to have if you look at the way kids' uh, football is, seems to be going a lot of places. It's truly fascinating. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's so abstract from what I guess in this country and and you know the major European nations that are used to. I, I wonder, lads, is that something that would only work in that specific environment in Brina? Because I mean, I, I'm to I'm total agreement. I, I've for a long time had pretty harsh and strong opinions on academy football mm. to the sense, and, mm. and I'd be careful with my words, but I, I do feel like there's almost an element of of 
the way these young players and, and kids, you've said the word yourself, yeah. children are groomed yeah. into believing they are the best, they are the, the most worthwhile, the top of the class. And that on the sort of off the pitch aspect comes without consequence. Do you feel like in this, does it, is it a cultural thing that I guess we, we have never been able to embrace in England? And, and I guess what moreover can we learn from these practices of Alfingver Bernstein? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right in that there's a cultural component here, for sure, that it's m- maybe int- easier to implement something like this in, in Norway, where there is a slightly more, I guess, egalitarian sort of, slightly sort of socialist view on how the country should mm. be run and how we should treat each other. But, but there's little things, which again, like I go into the chapter, is that they didn't... They didn't uh, when they had to separate the players because they were playing with multiple teams, they never put the most talented kids into the same team. Like they always, they mm. they, they 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 found okay, who are the most advanced, who are the most promising, who are doing the best. We'll split them all up, <laughs> and and, and mm. the idea was instead of having one team that would sweep all before them because the it was a very strong generation. You you then you you gave those kids different challenges, and I think that's something that you can see with with Aling even today. I mean, he he is. He's very good so far at not getting overtly cross with his teammates. You know, if a pass is not quite mm. right, City yeah. fans will have seen this. He gets very frustrated, but he manages to kind of internalize it. He very rarely will turn and gesticulate or shout or something. What he will do is he'll kind of stare at the ground a little bit, and you can see it's almost <laughs> like he's counting to 10. I mean, we saw a very, you remember that game where. I forget where it was, but it was when he was kind of being harangued by Pep. At, at they were going in to half time. It, it was Burnley. Burnley at the start was of the season. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah, yes, yeah. that's exactly what. Thank you. Where Pep was kind of having a go at him in front of the cameras, and you can see his face. He's he's doing his very best not to respond. Not he's just staring straight ahead. And just <laughs> let's just get to the dressing room here now. You, you can that is kind of the mode he slips into when he gets frustrated on the field as well with, with teammates. But I think actually having an upbringing where you're you're not playing with the all the best kids all the time. You 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 play a lot with kids who are a lot less good at you and you have to get used to not getting a perfect pass back you have to get used to not always getting the thing that you're expecting i think that that was very useful and i think this idea that we have to we have to get all the best kids together constantly is that there can be a downside to that i mean again as the coach explained to me they they could have put all the best kids into one team again that would play games they would have won six or seven nil because again it was a strong year Mm. But the center halves on that team wouldn't have learned much, would they? I mean, they, they wouldn't have learned, they wouldn't have gotten very good at defending. Uh, so, so you can actually this idea of of having even teams and and uh, and, and can actually give uh, kids challenges that are very useful for them in in other ways, and it teaches them to take responsibility. Another more obvious point is that I mean, Alan Holland was moved up a year, and he was a late mm. bloomer physically. So when he was sort of 11, 12, 13, 14 even. He was his height sort of started coming. But he was quite scrawny. He wasn't physically tough. He was quick. He was eventually mm. quite lanky, but he wasn't physically tough. And in his year, uh, there or in that group, there were two center halves who ended up being youth internationals for Norway. Uh, so, so you had some and who were quite big quite early. So he got boshed around like quite a lot in training. Like he had to learn how to cope with uh, boys who are you know you know yourself. You remember being. 
that age, sort of yeah. 11, 12, 13, the boys yeah. who are a year older than you, who are a little bit early developed as well, they feel a lot bigger than you. Uh, so, so that's kind of mm-hmm. who he was training against. So you see a lot of the sort of instincts you have in the box, his ability to get clear of his marker and find space, that will have developed in part because he had to. He had to be very smart to get chances in, in, in training because he had some pretty scary, for that time, defenders looking after him. That that is that is truly fascinating, and it does go to show. You know, you can see as you explain it now, like the Burnley incident where he's going off looking like a little bit of a sulking child, but obviously taking in that information, and 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 obviously, I, I guess his whole shtick for so long has been scoring goals. You know, that's what we know him for today, and and in fact, probably some of his critics will say that's all he offers, that's all he does. Which, by God, he's very good at it, but. When did when did it really start to become clear that he wasn't just another young talent? He was, you know, slightly better than the rest. He would score goals because, I mean, I've seen it before at grassroots level. I used to coach football um, when I was in university, and you know, there's you can see there are better players than others. That's just the natural sort of way how things work. But you can then see the players who were better than the better players. When when did it really become clear that Erling Haaland was going to go on and have this kind of career? So there's kind of two layers to that question, because on the one hand, it's the question, when did the coaches and the people who worked with him when he was young know? And they, they mm. probably saw, I mean, they, they will say certainly that they saw early that there's something like he could he could go on and do something. I don't think anyone foresaw that he was going to be a global superstar, but he had a very strong drive. And this is something I spoke to one of his teachers in primary school as well is that, you know, Erling would say he was going to be a footballer. And then you think, well, yeah, a lot of kids Mm. say that but there was a determination in his eyes you know he believed it with his entire being he wasn't saying it because he wanted to he he said it because he 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 knew almost like he he thought this is what i'm gonna do and there was a determination there that was unusual and the coaches will have uh the coaches will have seen stuff i think in terms of the general public again I've, i've flagged up the bond game which was important but but it's it feels so weird to say out loud, but for a while, he showed promise, and you could see that there was a high ceiling there, but he wasn't a super consistent finisher, which seems like an absurd thing to say, but for quite a while. Yeah. It took him a while to put that together. He he could seem quite clumsy early on. Mm. When he first started getting minutes from Bruna's senior team, that was very difficult for him because he was coming into a team that was basically in free fall, and that was completely dysfunctional. And, and he was often playing out wide, uh, and he would often he would make a lot of runs, but not get the kind of passes he needed. And so there was quite a lot of frustration. You can see some clips; you might recognize some of the patterns of movements and yeah. stuff. But he it was it was incredibly difficult for him that first season of playing senior football. But he was scoring a lot of goals in this in the in the second team so that were playing down in the fourth, <laughs> uh, I believe, the fourth tier in Norway. He was scoring a lot of goals at that level when he was sort of 15, 16, thereabouts. So it was one of those the coaches who followed him closely could see that there was something there. But it did actually take a little while before the public. Uh, caught on for sure wow yeah really interesting really interesting and I guess um finally to sort of just kind of wrap up this first section obviously you said at the start you know it hasn't had any involvement the book hasn't had any involvement from the family but what Mm -hmm. just from your personal opinion does that upbringing of having a professional footballer as your dad do because I guess Mm. you know Alfinger was he's loved by City fans and, and sort of a cult hero for maybe they're not most nice of reasons obviously the the Roy Keane incident has Mm. has left its mark Um, but you do sort of get the feeling with Erling that 
he's had a dad there in the best sense of the word, somebody who has been able to mentor him more than anything. And, and I mm-hmm, guess this mm-hmm. whole chat, what I'm learning and from you, Lars, and, and from his career is Erlin is all about the people around him. And mm. I guess if you're going to design a footballer, you want somebody above you, a dad like like Alfinger. You know, he, he genuinely does have the best heart of his, his child at heart. Totally. And I, I may have been guilty so far in this chat of like burying the lead in some ways, because when you've, <laughs> you, when you've spent as many hours on a subject as I have with this, you end up becoming slightly obsessed with some of the, <laughs> the, the, the sidetracks that it's like, so we've turned I, into it's a very sort of... So. It's, it's been fascinating. <laughs> nerdy discussion about coaching and how you raise children and stuff i don't know but like the most obvious thing to say which i I forget that not everyone knows this is that yes his father of course great footballer but Mm. also there's a lot of athletic uh stuff on his mother's side like his mother was a national champion at heptathlon in norway at the age of 18 uh which is one of those like uh heptathlon if you're uh if if you're not familiar, is is, is one of those uh, track and field fun. events? Yeah, it's not fun. No, it's 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 a track and field event, which is for female athlete. It's the hundred meter hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the two hundred <laughs> meter dash, the long jump, the javelin throw, and the eight hundred meter <laughs> run. Right. So it's basically all the track and field things. So if you're a national champion at that, it, it requires first of all a pretty balanced physique, a combination of strength and explosivity, but also it requires a lot of discipline and determination because you have to actually get good at the technique of throwing a javelin and stuff mm. like that. That's not something you can just do. So, so his mother, you know, was a was a serious athlete as well in her day, and actually, so was her mother. So, I went on the website of the Brune sort of local athletics club. Now, I should stress this is the local athletics club, but it's still interesting. Their sort of historical records book. You can see various age group records for the for the hundred meter for the various events. You know, a bunch of them were set by Aling Holland's mother in the eighties, but also quite a few of them were set by Aling Holland's grandmother in the in the <laughs> in the sixties or seventies. I forget, but basically, yeah. So there's incredible like athletic pedigree mm. in his background. But I think more to the question, and again, I'll just without I don't have to speculate. I can I can refer to the 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 very intelligent Mister Benson who knows Aling well and and was there. He says that. As, as far as he was concerned as his coach he thinks it was very valuable to have Alfie especially when things started taking off you know mm-hmm. when he starts getting invited to to youth international squads and when agents start circling and we start getting offers that's when it becomes incredibly valuable to have a father who knows the industry who himself you know will will have had, you know will know an agent who can advise him and when you become a professional, when you move to a new place and go into a new club and you have to find your way in a dressing room to, to learn how, how you behave, basically, what you have to do to get accepted, what, what sort of obvious landmines you shouldn't fall into. To have a father who knows all this stuff is is super important. Mm. The impression you've always gotten from, from Alfie is that he didn't he didn't have to be a pushy parent at all with Erling. Mm. Like, if anything, you sometimes needed to... Maybe not slow him down, but like the, the determination, Erling was always incredibly determined, is what everyone says. Uh, so that wasn't uh, so much a thing. But but it was also interesting that uh, Alfie Holland was not very active. Like he wasn't, he didn't turn up for training with the youth team and started telling everyone how mm. it should be. You know, he, he he came to the games and I'm sure he had conversations with with Erling, but they felt they kind of felt, well, the, these coaches seem to know what they're doing. So he wasn't a very pushy parent, even though he had a pretty significant footballing background himself. But I think where the real value of having him is when it starts kicking off to have a father who who knows the industry the way he does 
incredibly valuable, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, going back to the whole academy debate, you know, parents are, are the ones who are, are sort of trying to live the dream through the children a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And and, and I, I did that. That's the one thing that strikes me, especially from a city point of view, just the way our finger has been there to sort of just nurture him, I guess, is, is the best yep. sort of word yep. I can find. Um, Laz, I guess before we go on to part two, is there anything else you wanted to wrap up on, on Brina and, and sort of his upbringing? I guess, moreover, the, the fact for you personally being there, what it's done for the town, what it's done for that part of Norway, because yeah. it, it's obviously Alfinger was from there and I guess people from Norway will, will know it, but it, it's a pretty unassuming part of the world. But now it's world yes. famous. It is, you know, yeah. it is the birthplace, or no, the birthplace, God, no, <laughs> Leeds fans, please don't listen to <laughs> come this. Come on, come on. The people was, of Yorkshire will be at Yeah, you. yeah. Well, as a Lancastrian, that's, that's a lot of the time it, it is the case anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank God the cricket season's finished, by the way. But, um, you know, it's it's literally to use a cliche, put it on the map. Yeah, no, it has, uh, which is obviously incredible. And we have you walk around downtown now; there are like massive murals of him. Mm. Um, the biggest one is of him in a Dortmund shirt, and it's kind of funny because it's on the old dairy, which is a big building to begin with. But uh, they've actually like because Erling is such a big guy, they had to add a bit on the scaffolding or the top to get his <laughs> fist in properly. It's, a, it's, it's it was, he was too big even for that building, uh, and and you go to. My, what what was my favorite Chinese place in town? There were two. Uh, the mm. one I preferred was then also Erling's favorite a few years later because I'm a bit older than him. If you go there, he'll have their, their like signed shirts on the wall and photos with him and the wow. owner. There's a signed city shirt where it says, you know, best Chinese food in the world. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's called the Wenhua House. They're famous for like pretty basic Chinese food, but well done and just massive portions, just inexplicably mm. large portions. That's what you want. So you can it's, see why exactly Erling, what you, you want. can see why Erling Holland was very happy there, yeah. Um, but no, obviously he's left a very real imprint on the town in that regard. And also, you know, it... He said it himself. I mean, the, the I haven't mentioned the Yavholm yet, which is bad. The sort of indoor, there's an indoor venue, an indoor pitch, basically, where he would train a lot. And, and this you might have read about elsewhere because uh, the, the elements are not always kind. The weather is not always great in this part of town because Brina, because being a very flat strip of land facing just into the North Sea, like all manner of like rain and wind comes in. So again the farmers who were picking rocks out of the ground, they often have to do it with like sideways rain and, and wind tugging at them. So it's, I have a lot of memories of trying to play football outside in Brina and the ball just going everywhere because of the wind. But but when Alan grew up, they had an indoor they had an indoor venue, which some of the reports you read, it was like he was in there 24-7. Like, that's not true because the venue is booked up most of the week with various teams and stuff. But at the weekends, they were left unlocked. So at the weekends, he could just get on his bike and, and go down to the, the, the indoor football hall and just try to grab a goal, and then they would play uh, play all day. So he had that sort of place. And in that uh, indoor venue now, there's, of course, a huge, uh, again, poster, mural, uh, depiction of Alling Holland. And I, I think it matters a lot to kids in a small place like that to go and go to football practice and see this sort of permanent reminder of you can start out as a kid in this little place, in this little town, in this exact hall, and there really is no limit to what you can achieve. And I, and I think that's what football has and sh- is a huge part of football's appeal, right? It doesn't matter wh- where you're from or what pedigree or anything. In the case of Ali Holland, he has quite a lot, but it's still uh, him being from there and being that successful, I think, gives local kids a lot of hope and inspiration, I'm sure. That is it for part one of my chat with Lars Sivertson. 
Firstly, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're looking to find out more about our Norwegian superstar, stick around for part two, which will be in your podcast feeds tomorrow. In the meantime, you can purchase Lars's book, Harland, The Incredible Story Behind the World's Greatest Striker, which comes out on November the 2nd. Until next time then, we'll see you later. Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end-of-season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running, and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.